Welcome to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang. You're listening to our award-winning Smithsonian Associates interview series, and our guest today is Dr. David Fry, who's written and researched and will be telling us all about his subject, the Ritchie Boys. Between 1942 and 1945, the U.S. military established the Military Intelligence Training Center, MITC, which recruited an unusual group of soldiers, refugees from Nazi-occupied Europe, Japanese Americans, Native Americans, African Americans, women, artists, intellectuals, and others. Our guest today, Dr. David Fry, a professor of history and director of the Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at West Point, spotlights two groups possessed of individual linguistic skills and who could pull off an amazing transformation to aid the U.S. war effort. Among the Ritchie boys, named for the secret Camp Ritchie facility in Maryland, were young Jewish refugees, mostly from Nazi Germany and Austria. They returned to Europe after being trained in how to gather battlefield intelligence. Second-generation Japanese-Americans, or Nisei, also trained at the camp, serving as translators, interpreters, and interrogators. Dr. David Fry tells us the story of the recruits' wartime contributions and their enduring effects on the culture and politics of the Cold War era and on what it meant to be an American. This story is amazing, and the Ritchie boys were young men, many of them German-born Jews, who fled Nazi Germany to the United States. They were trained in intelligence and psychological warfare and returned to Germany as soldiers in the U.S. Army. Join me for a fascinating story you have to hear to believe. And let's welcome to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast, Smithsonian Associate, Dr. David Fry. Dr. David Fry, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's an honor to talk to you today and a privilege to be able to talk about the Ritchie Boys. Yeah, I'm really interested in this subject. I know our audience will be, too. Why don't you introduce us to the Ritchie Boys? Let's just start there. So Camp Ritchie was a military intelligence training center set up in 1942 as a result of the U.S. Army's recognition that we needed to train uh, soldiers to be specialists in battlefield intelligence primarily. Uh, The military intelligence division, which was the organization that oversaw Camp Ritchie, a section of the the G2 or the general staff second section, which was in charge of intelligence, was was very small during the interwar period. It numbered only about 180 people. And so going into the war, General Marshall, who was the chief of staff of the army, realized that that was not going to be enough to fulfill the the, uh, the intelligent mission of the uh, armed forces, which was to really know what we were be fighting against in a massive war of maneuver with armies spread across uh, hundreds of miles. We would need far more than 180 people to take care of that mission. And so in looking at this, you know, these elements and in evaluating our our enemy language skills played a real role here and so the Ritchie boys really were very skilled when it came to this area of uh, of knowledge and so maybe tell us a little bit about what they did in that regard what their mission was with 
with these language skills intact. Absolutely. And so the, the, the people who are selected for Cambridge were selected for two, uh, two basic reasons. Number one, they had language abilities so they could both translate and they could talk. They also had the uh, cultural understanding. They understood idioms. They understood specific uh, different dialects. They, they were able to, to, to do uh, that important communication that's necessary for both analysis of documents as well as analysis of, um, of interrogations or ability to interrogate. And so all kinds of immigrants were selected or people who were uh, who had the language abilities, particularly if they had native language abilities. And so a large portion and overrepresented portion of those who were selected to come to Camp Ritchie were recent Jewish emigres, recent Jewish refugees from Hitler's Europe, uh, from Hungary, from Poland, from Russia, from, um, from anywhere that you can imagine, particularly Germany and Austria. And they were recruited. And the second reason they were recruited is not just their language ability, but their intelligence. And so these were some of the uh, most impressive people who you could imagine. The, the, uh, the story of Camp Ritchie is that it's the place where the professors write the book, or the professors are the privates, and they're the, one, they're the ones who write the books. And uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a little poem about Camp Ritchie that includes a portion about that. And uh, and I think that was that was true that you had people who had uh, already had significant higher education who were were privates who were in uh, doing all kinds of things and I can certainly talk about all the different types of activities that the Ritchie boys and and a handful of women engaged in as well. Yes, well, and and this was not a small skill because just as we are fighting battles in the Middle East and learning the various Arabic dialects, whether it's the Arabic of the Quran or Farsi. There are idioms, as you suggest, of the of the German language that without that kind of on-the-ground knowledge, so to speak, that literally somebody who was from that area, we wouldn't we wouldn't know that. And I guess I'm curious how did the how did the army really begin to recognize that we had this weakness? when it comes to the battlefield intelligence and, and, and why this language skill was just so important, so critical to our success? That's a really good question. That actually is one of my major research questions is how did the army actually come to that realization? Because believe it or not, the, the realization that uh, diversity of experience and language and background uh, has value, especially strategic value when you're fighting um, a, a massive war that is not, uh, was not during this period of time, the time of World War II, that was not given. That was not something that was accepted by the uh, majority of populations around the world. And so the, um, the chief of staff of the army at the time, George Marshall, realized that we lacked people to do battlefield intelligence. The military intelligence division, which was a component of the, the G2, the general staff, second section, which is the intelligence section, was very small. It only had about 180 people during the interwar period. And so there simply weren't enough people to do battlefield intelligence. And uh, when uh, uh, when General, excuse, excuse me, Brigadier General Lee came back from, as he was the military attache to Great Britain 
he had watched and seen how Great Britain had uh, had created its own battlefield intelligence capability, and he thought that their model was excellent. He brought uh, a British colonel with him, Colonel Robbins, and it was uh, Lee and Robbins who essentially set up the military intelligence training center uh, at Camp Ritchie and uh, and under an, a gentleman named Banfield, Colonel Banfield, who later became a brigadier general. And the, the, the idea that we need to have a significant number of people on the battlefield who can speak the language of the enemies and of the occupied populations. And at that time, we had no idea what particular lands we were going to occupy. We were training people to speak Turkish, to, uh, to speak uh, to speak Russian, to speak Bulgarian, to speak Hungarian, uh, to speak Arabic, obviously, to in North Africa. So every one of these languages was important. There were people training in all these languages. There were documents we were um, we were finding, uh, and whether through captured, we would capture them. Some some of this information we captured from the early submariners, from U-boats that we captured early on in the war. So it's this kind of information that needed to be translated. And to get back to your your issue about uh, about idiom, it was not just idiom. It was also the the connection and the geographic knowledge that many of these individuals had about the land that they came from. And one of the ways you establish a rapport with those who you um, you interrogate is actually to talk about things that you have in common or experiences that you may have had in common. So in some cases, uh, there were Richie boys who recounted knowing, you know, sharing a, a love of, of a particular soccer team from a, from a particular area or having common schoolboy experiences that they could talk about with, uh, with some of the captured German soldiers and be able to kind of establish a rapport that someone who was uh, who was not an emigre would not be able to do. And as a matter of fact, this was all so important. This language skill was so important. I mean, we today we we have the Defense Language Institute. Uh, what was the Monterey, uh, you know, um, School of Language, uh, the Presidio of Monterey, and so this was just the precursor for all of that that exists today. This was just that crucial to to winning the war. Uh, it wasn't quite the the only precursor uh, at, at at the Presidio. Actually, that was where Japanese language training was done, and uh, and at near the uh, the end portion of the war. So in the fall of 1944, Camp Ritchie actually be, became a place where Japanese language uh, uh, interrogation specialists were trained, and uh, and so there were a significant number of what some call Nisei, but Japanese Americans who came through uh, intelligence training programs, some of whom had actually already served in the vaunted 442nd uh, infantry regiment. And so they, uh, or, um, and so they had that experience of fighting uh, and becoming incredibly decorated and then being selected to, to attend a um, military intelligence training program. So, they then were sent back to the Pacific, mostly to translate documents. Very few did the same kind of battlefield intelligence. And this is part of what I think the story of Camp Ritchie shows is the degree to which uh, 
Jewish refugees were able to assimilate, gain positions as officers, while Japanese Americans, to some extent, were still distrusted, even though they had proven themselves on the battlefield, they were not allowed to serve under arms and to, uh, and to do real battlefield interrogation until the very, very end of the war. And in fact, you know, these these were immigrants and they were eager to join the fight. Why do you think they wanted to just, you know, step forward in that way and not just kind of melt right into American society? Well, I think so. for uh, the Jewish refugees, many of whom at the beginning of the war were considered enemy aliens, there was a desire to fight uh, because they believed, as some of them have uh, have said in oral histories or written or said to me in interviews, that, that this was their war. Uh, they believed it was a war that they had to fight. Uh, often they had family members who were still in Germany, Austria, or other uh, occupied countries, and uh, people who they were fighting for. And uh, if you can imagine the the difficulty of fighting a war, not knowing if your parent is alive, if your um, if your brother is able has been able to make it out to escape. There, uh, there are incredible horrors. But the same thing is true to some extent with the Japanese Americans. Many of them were recruited straight out of internment camps and then fought uh, to prove that they had uh, that they deserved American citizenship. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life? And everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Dr. David Fry. Dr. Fry is a professor of history and director of the Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at West Point. We're talking today about the Ritchie Boys, and this was a, a group that just possessed invaluable uh, skills um, serving at Camp Ritchie and uh, processed through the Military Intelligence Training Center. Dr. Fry, in addition to these language skills, the Ritchie Boys needed to understand more than just how and where things they needed to be interrogators they needed to perhaps understand some hand-to-hand combat tell us a little bit more about some of the courses that the Ritchie boys took there at Camp Ritchie well you're very right they also took courses on uh, on hand-to-hand combat they took courses on terrain analysis They took courses, as I mentioned, on aerial photography um, and and aerial reconnaissance analysis. They did counterintelligence. They did all kinds of different training, and they did did it in uh, eight weeks. The basic program was an eight-week program, and then they would specialize in many cases. And so some of them who were uh, uh, really talented were selected to do the order of battle, uh, essentially 
they had to do the the real research on order of battle and help assemble the order of battle books and those are books that continually had to be updated as the german army changed or the german forces changed uh, as the nazi party structure may have changed the ss changed so knowing all of where the or who the most important leaders were in the in the ss and in the nazi party knowing what units were were not only fighting where they had fought, but when they were, uh, in some cases, decimated, they had to be recreated, uh, and then they would be merged with other units, or they would uh, they would have replacements in them. Knowing that was also really important because it may uh, play a role in their ability to fight in there, because new trainees might not be as good as the hardened veterans. So they. Uh, they had to do an, an enormous amount of training, and I mentioned the Order of Battle books just to say that uh, those were really important and were not allowed to be taken to the front. So some of these experts had to memorize approximately 500 pages of Order of Battle so that uh, if they, whenever a, uh, prisoners were captured, they were um, immediately brought to, to what they called the cages at the front, uh, they were processed by those who were from Camp Ritchie, who had also trained others. So in advance of D-Day, for example, while uh, stationed over in England, uh, what trained Ritchie boys did was run additional training programs for, uh, for other intelligence personnel who were already stationed over in, in Great Britain and waiting for the invasion. So these were the kinds of things they had to do. And there was a lot of training condensed in a very, very short period of time. You know, Hollywood gives us a glimpse into, you know, torture techniques of getting people to talk, but it's much more sophisticated than that. I imagine, I don't know the details, but maybe share with us perhaps some of the creative ways that the Ritchie boys were able to, gain confidence in their prisoners and gain the trust and give these prisoners a feeling that, you know, they kind of knew who they were and that allowed them to maybe talk and be a little bit more um, uh, free with the information. I, I just, I can see this as probably the direction, but how, how effective were they at, at gathering intelligence? Well, I'll first start with uh, an answer to what how they were trained. They were trained not to use violence in interrogation, and that is very clear in the training materials and in what the uh, what those trained at Camp Ritchie have said. Now, that uh, of course, I'm sure that there were exceptions on the battlefield, uh, but by and large, the they knew in 1943, 44, 45 that the best way to get information from someone was to uh, to befriend them, to establish some form of rapport. And so they did that in a variety of ways. Some of it as simple as uh, basically saying, you know, we're, we're both exhausted. We really want this war to end. They also knew from their own experiences that, uh, that not every um, German conscript was a hardened Nazi. And so they were able to separate out those who were anti-Nazi those who were we'll call fellow travelers, and then those were who were hardened Nazis, and so they would focus on those who they thought they uh, who wanted to cooperate, and there were many. Another way they did is when they had prisoners who were the kind of hardened or 
uh, tough, very pro-Nazi, uh, not, didn't show any indication that they wanted to cooperate. Uh, they would occasionally use ruses. And some, uh, if uh, anyone has seen 60 Minutes, the, one of the ruses discussed by Guy Stern was having someone, and in Guy's case, it was him, disguised as a, um, as a Soviet uh, interrogator. And so one of the threats that the Americans would use was that if you don't talk to us, we're going to turn you over. In the case of Guy Stern, he, would, he used the persona of Comrade Khrushchev. And that uh, often got uh, people to talk. They would much rather talk to the Germans, excuse me, talk to the Americans than be turned over to the Russians. Uh, but he, as I said before, that was some of it was knowing a lot about the enemy. And this is, again, why that intelligence is so important. If you can convince the enemy that you already know virtually everything that you know about the unit they served in, you know where they served, you know who commanded. Those are the kinds of things that uh, convince people that the information that they're giving you is probably something you already know. And so they're more willing to talk. And so that was one of the ways they also convinced individuals to cooperate. What were some of the most memorable contributions that the Ritchie boys made to the, uh, to the effort, to the war effort? Another great question. Thank you. That, uh, the, the contributions were fairly significant. So the uh, army did a, a, a what I would call a, a kind of non-scientific survey of battalion commanders at the end of the war, and found that nearly 60% of the actionable intelligence that was gathered was uh, gathered and processed by graduates of Camp Ritchie uh, on, on the the whole European front. So that included North Africa and um, and the Italian front, the, the, all, everything in France and, and through Germany. The um, about 165 uh, graduates of Camp Ritchie died in service. Some were used as uh, um, beyond the front as scouts. Uh, others it helped to translate uh, some of the most important translate and interrogate some of the most important war criminals that uh, that we can think of. And a lot of what we have learned about the Holocaust and about the German prosecution of the war. We learned through information collected and translated by graduates of Camp Ritchie. They contributed to the war crimes trials as well. They helped get, um, by my estimates, well over 200,000 minimum people to surrender. Uh, in one case, um, one individual got nearly 150,000 German troops to surrender. Uh, right on the elbow, uh, as a, he was a member of the 82nd Airborne. And so there are numerous cases uh, of saving American lives and helping to predict the, the Battle of the Bulge and the, to, the, to the hour that it would occur. Uh, there, uh, examples like this go on and on. Uh, there were it really underscores the importance of military intelligence and in prosecuting the war. Yes. 60% is a big number. That's really um, just impressive and what wonderful work they did. And I know you've spoken and you mentioned Stern and I know you've actually interviewed some of these. What are some of the living Ritchie boys doing today? And uh, what did they do after the war? 
did they did they all go on to become U.S. spies? Was that their kind of uh, uh, employment direction? How did they how did they kind of make their way? No, uh, uh, some of them did join the counterintelligence corps and continued to investigate uh, instead of uh, in the, they, they continued to arrest and investigate uh, members of the Nazi party uh, af- after um, the fighting had ceased. But most did not become spies. About somewhere between 200 and 300 uh, were members of the OSS and went on to uh, to careers that took them into the CIA. So the OSS was the Office of Strategic Services, and the uh, which was the precursor organization to the CIA. Uh, others helped to found the um, the NSA, uh, and uh, still others played significant roles in in all functions of the State Department. Many became ambassadors. I can't say many, but uh, I would say I've come across probably close to twenty who became ambassadors at some point in time. Uh, others became academics, several college presidents, a couple um, worked uh, in Congress or were governors. Uh, others were fairly well-known writers, um, editors of significant newspapers, publishers, uh, scientists, you name it. They were some of the leading figures in the, in the post-war and helped to really shape Cold War culture and helped to found um, one who I just spoke to a couple of weeks ago was one of the founders of America House in uh, in Berlin and helped to also uh, set up Voice of America. Uh, still others were um, helped to reestablish the culture industries in post-war Germany and in Austria and then went on to roles in the um, in Hollywood. So these are these are people who uh, who were made great contributions uh, and sometimes unexpected ones. One of the families that I'm in touch with, uh, the father became the largest poultry farmer in New Jersey. Uh, and in this kind of innovative work, he set up a standardized system that allowed him, uh, somewhat ironically, but uh, but interestingly, to to be the provider of eggs to Fort Dix. So these are the kinds of connections and things that the the, the Ritchie boys went on to. Uh, they they just they became the uh, what I would say is uh, not only contributors to post-war America, but in a way they became the epitome of that uh, immigrant American who pulled themselves up from their bootstraps and goes on and and is able to to do some wonderful things both during the war mm-hmm. and after. And teaching us all what it means to be an American. Dr. David Fry, professor of history and director of the Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at West Point, has been our guest today. Dr. Fry, thank you for telling this wonderful story. We appreciate it. It's very inspirational. We're going to put up links so that our audience can find out more information about Dr. Fry, as well as his story and the Richie Boys information that he has researched. Dr. Fry, thank you so much for your time today, and um, please come back when you have more to share with the Richie Boys, because I know this will be a popular story with our audience. Fantastic. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity. My thanks to Dr. David Fry for his generous time today, as well as this fascinating Smithsonian Associates story of the Richie Boys. My thanks to the Smithsonian Associates team for their ongoing support of the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and on podcast. 
Please be well, be safe. Let's eliminate assault rifles. Assault rifles are not needed, and our wonderful children and grandchildren are frightened in the very place they do their learning, schools. Let's do this together, and let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. I'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.